Hey everybody, welcome to Horror Comics Podcast. This is Chris. This is episode 5, and thank you so much for listening. If you're a new listener, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is actually going to be a little bit different, not necessarily in the way I approach it, but just kind of where I'm pulling the stories from, and I'll tell you about that in a little bit. I Because I, I usually will pick in, I'll pick one magazine or one comic, and I'll read all the stories from that. I'm not going to do that today. Uh, I'll tell you in a little bit what I'm going to be doing. But I appreciate your patience with me. If you've been listening on this episode, we've had a lot of a lot of sick, a lot of sickness in, in our house over the last week or two. And you know, my kid too. I posted on Twitter he had an ear infection and he's a trooper. He's blasting through it, but he actually ended up was able to go to his grandmother's today, so I can tackle some of this. Hopefully, the whole thing. We'll see what happens. But um, yeah, so it's been kind of crazy. And uh, but I'm glad it worked out for me to. Come record here uh, this afternoon, and hopefully you all enjoy the stories I'm going to do. And um, I had a really hard time deciding what I was going to even uh, what I was going to even cover in this episode. And I, I kind of bouncing around. I had a conversation on Twitter with Andrew about Ghost Manor, and it turned out uh, one of the the issues that he remember reading was one that I actually have. The problem was when I actually went to get ready, I was going to record it and I read it and I remember being like, okay, it just, it seems like something's missing here, which isn't weird for horror comics from this era, that era. Um, but I actually went in and noticed it looks like somebody actually cut out really finely right in the creases. So I could barely tell until I looked really closely They'd cut out the pages, like probably to send in for some kind of offer or something. So I actually had story pages missing. So I can't really do that one, uh, <laughs> which is a shame because uh, I wanted to do it. I've got more issues with that, um, but that was kind of the one that we had talked about. So I felt bad. I'm going to see if I can find another issue of it before I actually go to Ghost Manor because that book is a little bit, it, quite a bit more tame than most of the books that I'll cover, uh, especially today. So, um, Without further ado, I am going to, the, well, I'll get into the books, but the first book that I am covering, well, the first story is called The Bone Man, and it's from Horror from the Tomb, number one. Uh, it was published by Premier Magazines in September of 1954. This is actually, that's actually the only issue that Premier Magazines put out in the pre-code horror era was um that one and i'm just reading this was actually i'm reading this from a collection called haunted horror uh it's number seven actually and it's from yo comics and a little bit about yo comics it's actually an imprint of idw that was started by craig yo i hope i'm i hope it's yo it's yo it's y-o-e you know they collect a lot of these old school uh, horror comics and it's it's pretty cool to me um they've done i think like six or seven full-on collections of these um well i mean of haunted horror and then there's i mean it it goes you know on on and on from there um but actually it seems like it might be called well they've got the chilling archives of horror comics and i guess that banner kind of covers different things but haunted horror was one uh that had m several issues but they put out a lot you can go to the website which i believe is just yo comics or yo yobooks.com actually and again it's y o e so I, I might not be pronounced yo maybe it's yoy like i said i, I don't know 
Maybe he likes something really fancy. His hair is kind of crazy. So, you know, maybe look him up. But that again, so the first story is from, uh, like I said, it's horror from the tomb number one. So I guess it is considered um, a one shot, if that. Maybe it wasn't meant to be, but it seems pretty. High, it seems pretty highly regarded, and I don't have that issue. I again, I'm, I have this collection, but I wanted to go try to find it. I know you can find it online, but I want to actually try to find the book. I imagine it's probably pretty expensive if it's highly regarded, and also, um, you know only had one print so but we'll go ahead and get into the bone man we see a raggedy looking guy uh wearing a kind of a new a checkered newsy hat and some patchy clothes he's nailing a coffin shut with a body that's kind of half hanging out of it he seems to be in some kind of dungeon area with skulls and rats and just utterly uh, a lot of water standing around Again, the art is by Manny Banks. Don't stand there. Come in. Don't mind the fresh corpses. Just push them aside. So you want to hear a graveyard keeper's tale? I have a nice one here about bones. Nice white bones. The kind I love. Casper loved bones, too. He worked with them. Lived with them. He even dreamt about them. Maybe that's why they called him the Bone Man. Here we meet Dr. Casper Crisp. Dr. Casper Crisp had an all-absorbing love, paleontology. He was the Bone Man, the guy who puts all the skeletons together. His workshop, one corner of the museum, was his study and his lab. Dr. Casper Crisp, holding a very giant bone, thinks to himself, very nice, very nice, indeed. Pity there wasn't more meat on him. Of course, I have a tendency to overcook them. Still, the bones are what count. Lovely snow-white bones. Bah! The poet's prattling of the snow-white woman's flesh. Bones! They are snow-white. We see Dr. Crisp looking at what, to me, it looks like a chicken leg with a bone sticking out. We do see uh, what looks like the skeleton of some kind of animal, uh, maybe dinosaur, giraffe in the back. We see him putting bones into these giant kettles, boiling over with some kind of substance. Yellow and red substance. No, Dr. Crisp wasn't interested in the meat. Just lovely snow-white bones, as we've really drilled into your head. No pun intended. But then, he didn't know what was going on upstairs in the office of Horace Drew, chairman of the Museum Board of Directors. This fat, loathsome specimen of humanity, Jesus, has an axe to grind, and he's going to grind it on Crisp's bones. We see a man, middle-aged, getting up elderly, a balding man, uh, and talking to his young daughter. Looks like she's probably mid to late 20s. You want to help your daddy, don't you, honey? You want to do him a big, big favor? Well... A feral grin played across his features. His fingers twined like fat white worms. Christ, really hitting at this guy. He struck a bargain. Okay, the mink coat's yours if you do this little favor for Papa. And the convertible? Don't forget that. Crisp is the only man that stands between me and the job as head curator. If I can discredit him and the job is mine. Besides, he and those disgusting bones are driving me out of my mind. And that's what I'm supposed to do, is it? Force him out one way or another? 
Shouldn't be hard. The little man doesn't know his way around. Alice put the plan into action. Alice is the daughter, I guess. Chris was used to only animals around bones. Not to anything like Alice around bones. Everything about her was vital. We see her standing, watching him as he's cleaning a bone. Uh, the workshop is not open to the public. I mean, I, I beg your pardon. Uh, uh, oh, aren't you cute? They said you were funny. I think you're cute. I mean it. Working in that stuffy old p- place. Well, we're going to change that right now. Before he realized what was happening, Crisp had a date with the fast-talking Alice. We see them walking into a restaurant or bar. Maybe walking out of the museum. It's kind of what we're... Yeah, they're walking out of the museum. And just as I told Daddy, I said, that awfully nice Dr. Crisp, all along with those nasty old bones. Poor man, I'll bet he hasn't seen anything in ages. And that's why we're going. First to the Stag Inn, then to Wind Up, and maybe later to Smoky Moe's, where there's supposed to be a voodoo dance. It'll be fun. They're outside, and Dr. Crisp looks uh, quite nervous. We see them sitting down, having some drinks, uh, and lots of people around, so it's a pretty lively atmosphere. Lovers in all the dark corners. Alice close to him. The heady smell of her perfume. The redness of her lips. The incredible allure of her nearness. Uh, I never drink before. Will this drink? She's awfully forceful there. Forgotten was the workshop with its collections of ancient bones. This was real, and no bone was as white or fragrant as the face of the woman next to him. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought me here. I like it. Now we see that Dr. Crisp is kind of spilling his drink a little bit. She says, that's it. Bottoms up, cutie. Now he's a little bit more disheveled. We see his hair starting to kind of fall down in front of his head. He's got like a pretty hardcore widow's peak, and it's coming a little unraveled. His glasses are sitting a little lower on his nose. We see his martini seems to be spilling over even more. Say, let's go to Smoky Joe's. Smoky Moe's. Sure, after the next round. It was a big night. The biggest he ever had. Now we see Dr. Crisp is completely hammered. He's trying to pour more drink into his glass, and it's just pretty much pouring right on the table. Um, his glasses are not falling off. He's got his, t- his tie thrown behind his neck. And wee! She says, fun, fun, fun. Now, isn't this fun? You're so right. You're so very right. I want to go to the voodoo place. Let's go. Okay, Crispy, whatever you say. Now we see at the voodoo place, Dr. Crisp is completely passed out on the table. Drinks spilling all around. There's a a spilt shot glass. His glasses are out on the table. We see, uh, I guess, just echoes of what the night was happening. You see a a little billow of smoke coming from a candle. It says fun. You see words kind of whirling around the panel. Such good fun. Woo! Voodoo. There's voodoo masks hanging on the walls behind them. Now we see two more men approach the table. He's out cold. Put him in the back seat of my car and come along with us. There's 20 apiece for you after I show you what to do. Okay, lady. In the museum. Then break up the exhibits. Do a good job. Smash every one of those filthy bones into thousands of pieces. Break them. Destroy them. Now, wasn't our Alice a real cutie? Crisps sleeping sound. But what an awakening for him. Now we see him surrounded by broken bones. Still looks very drunk, but he's passed out. A short time later, Alice relates the vicious tale of her undoing 
of the poor Dr. Cripps to her gloating father. And then you left him there with the broken bones. I knew my daughter wouldn't fail me. Now we'll take a look at the carnage. I did my part, Dad. How about the coat and the convertible? A girl has to be paid for her little efforts to help out. It was a fit garment, the skins of treacherous animals over the body of a treacherous woman. Daddy, dear, you are the nicest man. In many ways, this has been a prosperous evening for both of us. Hurry, I want to see this lovely sight with my own eyes. Come, Alice, let's show Crispy a new coat. I'm sure he'll appreciate it, especially when he learns how you got it. We see Crisp awake, holding two broken bones, his glasses back on his face. But Mr. Drew and Alice are approaching him. What? What happened? Who did this terrible thing? Mr. Drew. Precisely what I'd like to know. And the answer seems obvious from your condition. The executive board already knows. I called them when my daughter told me what she saw you do. And they are now in special session. Do I have to tell you what they will do? Throw you out. That's what. You can't come here after a night of and a night out. You can't come here after a night out and destroy museum property. Chris seems to be holding the handle of something very close to his face. No, I couldn't have. I love these old bones. I could never hurt them. Never. The full consciousness of the girl's treachery snapped the delicate thread separating sanity and madness and transformed the gentle doctor of paleontology into a raving maniac. Mr. Drew screams. Alice, what's the matter? Why are you looking at me like that? No, no. Now Dr. Crisp looks absolutely insane and he's growling and he's holding, uh, there's probably a proper name for it. It looks kind of like a butcher knife, but it's more triangular. It's very long and thin. So maybe it's a special tool that paleontologists use. I don't know. I'm just going to call it a knife, but it's a little bit more treacherous looking than that. Now, we don't see him kill Alice, but she is on the floor, presume... Well, she... Well, she's dead. And Dr. Chris, you did it. You destroyed my lovely bones, both of you. Now he's approaching Mr. Drew. We see him impale Mr. Drew with this knife. Mr. Drew screams. Now Mr. Drew's on the ground, and Dr. Crisp seems to be stabbing him repeatedly. I'll show you. You both hate me. The doctor seems quite happy exchanging new bones for old. Just a little more cooking. Drew wasn't as tender as Alice's. Now in this dialogue box, there's a long blank spot after Drew before wasn't as tender as Alice's. I don't know if it was a mistake in the printing or if maybe it originally said like Drew's flesh wasn't as tender. Maybe it had to be edited out or something. I don't know. We just saw him get impaled. I wouldn't think that that would need to be edited or... Maybe it's just a weird typing method or error or something. But we do see Dr. Crisp. He's singing a little song to himself. Dum-dum-dee-dee-tra-la. And we see him with Alice's head, one of her arms. And he's about to place them in the two uh, big, uh, I guess, cauldrons. I don't know what I called them earlier. Cauldrons, where we see multiple body parts and uh, Drew's bald head sticking out. And they're boiling. Now we see the board of directors looking on. And uh, they each have something to say. I'm just going to kind of go through what they say. I'm not, I'm not going to try to point out who's who because, let's be honest, it doesn't matter. So they're watching, and it's hours later. They see him at the cauldrons that are smoking. We don't see body parts anymore. Oh, well, no, that's just the art. We're about to see body parts. Uh, we didn't believe, Drew, but the evidence is plain. We naturally respect your years of service, but you understand how it is. You're a disgrace to the museum. 
Always thought you were more of a butcher than a scholar. All this cooking and bone cutting, disgusting. I see now that Drew was right all the time. Yes, you are a nasty man, a disgrace to the museum. And what are those heads you're cooking? Oh! Other members of the board scream because we see that Alice and Drew's heads are now, he's forcing them into the cauldrons. And now we have a series of three panels that are a little bit more abstract, kind of just seeing a mouth screaming with a black background and Dr. Chris's insane face and like a hand holding a knife and the boiling cauldron and an eye, uh, bodies lying around. But he says, yes, the pots will hold them nicely. My, my, but their bones are tough, but I can do it. <laughs> Almost done. I'll need plenty of wire. At this point, he has murdered all of the members of the, of the or board of directors. And in the final panel, the next morning, we see the board of directors, along with Drew and Alice's skeletons, fully clothed, sitting, and he's got them arranged like an exhibit. He's standing in the corner with his hands together, laughing creepily. And there's actually a placard here that says, Board of Directors, extinct. And in the far left corner, there are two onlookers, peeping through the door. The end. Now, before I get into uh, talking about the issue, I did want to talk about the artist, Manny Banks. And I'm getting this information from the Lambiac Comiclopedia. I have, this is my first time seeing this website, but I was looking up some information about this. I know I usually do it beforehand. Uh, obviously, I didn't this time. But uh, Manny Banks was an artist working for comic books in the 1950s. He mainly worked on Atlas Mystery and action titles like Astonishing Comics, Journey into Mystery, Justice Comics, Marvel Tales, Police Action, and Uncanny Tales. He was also present in Weird Terror by Harwell Publications and Mysterious Adventures by Story Comics. He additionally drew romance features for Lev Gleason and crime stories for feature comics. Now, I actually love this issue or this story, and it makes me even more so want to go out and get uh, Horror from the Tomb, number one. And uh, no, I, I, I really like this one a lot. It's, it's pretty brutal. Um, it's not as bloody, but it's still like, you're, again, you're seeing him just stab people to death, and he's got people's body parts and is boiling them, and, you know, as we said before, and it's just something that uh, this is probably the most grotesque, at least as far as I can remember, story that we've covered on this show so far and um yeah it was kind of the point of even starting this podcast was to get into some of that pre-code stuff but i did want to dabble in what it looks like during the comics code um with things like uh you know ghosts and all that uh so i'm gonna be going back and forth but this episode is full of pretty much um i've got four total stories that are dealing with things like that and I highly recommend going to find uh, that issue, or like I said, if you can find the Haunted Horror, which those are relatively new collections, actually. Let me see if I can find a date on this one. Um, I can't, but they're still available on uh, the yobooks.com and Amazon. Your local comic shop probably has them in the back issue bins, and... Uh, I really like it a lot because it's pulling from all over. It focuses on the gruesome and the creepy and all that kind of uh, the really kind of. And when I say creepy, I don't mean the magazine creepy necessarily. I just mean it focuses on the more gruesome stuff and the actual kind of unsettling stories. Um, and I really like it. So that being said, I'm going to move on 
And the next story I'm going to tell is actually, it's out of Crime Suspense Stories number 15 from 1952. And the story is called Hale and Hardy. And it's actually a vaults of, or sorry, it's actually a haunt of fear story. Um, and it's hosted by the old witch. And I'll read a little bit more of the old witch's kind of intro here. But again, this is, but I'm actually reading it from a collection uh, of Tales from the Crypt from what looks like 1991. Is the copyright date on this particular collection, but it's all, it's actually done by EC and uh, they just kind of, they collected from all over. Like, obviously it's not, this isn't just all from Tales from the Crypt, um, but they're in this, it, this is the, um, it's 64 pages of vintage EC horror, Tales from the Crypt number two from October, I guess of 91. And in this, we've got, uh, four stories from Tales from the Crypt, number 34 from 1952, and then four stories from Crime Suspense Stories, uh, number 15 from 1952. Now, Hale and Hardy was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein. The art was by Graham Ingalls, but he's, I, guess, I guess he signed as Ghastly. The colors are by Marie Severin, and the letters by Jim Roten. It's your hostess in the haunt of fear, the old witch, once again guest-spotting another issue of crime suspense stories. I see by your drooling chins that you're ready for another horror helping from my cauldron. Well, I've rustled up a real revolting recipe this time. So come on in, and I'll serve you the spine-tingler I call Hail and Hearty. Anna shivered as she trudged down the street. The trees that lined it, stripped of their flesh leaves, stood like skeletons, reaching their bony fingers toward the bleak November sky overhead. The frail, sad-faced woman bundled her flimsy coat tighter around her neck and hurried on until she came to a paint-starved clapboard house. She thinks to herself, Oh dear, he didn't take them down. They're still up. And I asked him, I begged him. Anna stared up at the black screens still hanging in the windows, veterans of the previous summer's insect war. From them, streaks of rust, like tear stains, ran down the structure's pallid wooden face. Everything. I have to do everything myself. He, he doesn't lift a finger. Not a finger. Anna moved up the cracked cement walk towards the front door. At her feet, a carnival of leaves danced and swirled rustled and scratching, like waltzers at a costume ball. The lawn will be ruined by spring if the leaves aren't raked up. They'll mat down and kill the grass. It isn't hard to rake up leaves. He could do that, at least. The shivering woman fumbled for her keys and finally swung the front door open. It squeaked shrilly, resenting the disturbance. I told him last week to oil the hinges. Too much work for him. Anna closed the protesting door behind her and slipped off her threadbare coat. A voice boomed from the living room. Anna, that you? Yes, Ben, it's me. The living room was dark. Anna reached in and snapped on the light switch. The click was sharp and loud. Nothing happened. Ben, you didn't change the bulb. 
I asked you to change the bulb. Oh, oh, oh I forgot, Anna. The woman moved across the room and lit a lamp. Ben squinted up at her from his prostrate position on the couch. Oh, turn it off, huh? It hurts my eyes. Been sleeping all afternoon, I suppose. Ben sat up, stretched, and scratched his head, yawning. Just, I'm resting, Anna. You know I gotta take it easy. My heart. Your heart, your heart. That's all I hear is your heart. Well, you know I got a bad heart, Anna. Doc Bristol says I could go poof like that if I don't take it easy. Oiling a hinge won't kill you. Changing a light bulb. Oh, don't, please don't yell at me. It upsets me. I got a pain here in my chest. I, I'm sorry, Ben. Tomorrow's ash collection day, and I, I wish I could help you. I'll manage, Ben. Anna went down into the cellar, peered into the furnace. The fire had burned down low. She opened the coal bin and carried the shovelful after shovelful of the black fuel, tossing them into the gaping furnace mouth. I, I don't know how long I can go on like this, working at a job all day, taking care of the house at night. Then she began carrying the huge cans of ashes up the back cellar steps. A man approaches. I, I'll help you, Miss Storch. Oh, that's all right, Mr. Danbury. Mr. Danbury was Ann's neighbor. He took her by the arm gently. This is a man's work, Miss Storch. I don't mind, really. It's good of you, Mr. Danbury. I, I appreciate it. Mr. Danbury carried the loaded ash cans out to the front curb. Anna watched him, catching her breath. Uh, the least I could do, Mr. Storch. Now, with Ben out of commission like that, he could do the little things. I don't ask him to carry ashes, but the little things. Mr. Danbury placed the last can at the curbside and dusted his hands. He smiled at Anna. Well, I'm sure it's hard on Ben, too, Mr. Storch. It's tough for a man to be active all his life and then have to stop, like a rundown clock. He doesn't have to stop. Not altogether. He can make himself useful. Mr. Danbury nodded toward the screen windows. I'll help you with those next weekend. The weather will ruin them if you leave them up. Thank you, Mr. Danbury. Thank you so much. Ben Storch peered out of the window at the ash cans neatly lined at the curb. He grinned. It was a grin of satisfaction, a grin exposing his gold teeth. This guy just looks like a useless piece of shit. But the grin was gone when Anna came into the living room with the light bulb. Ben's face was sad. Oh, careful, Anna. Don't fall. You'll have to rake the leaves tomorrow, Ben. It's going to snow any day now. But, Anna... No buts. If it snows, the leaves will mat down and the lawn will be horrible. Next spring, you've got to rake them. It isn't hard work. I can't... I tried today and I got that pain. I, I can't rake them. Well, what do you want me to do? Stay home from work? Maybe this weekend? This weekend? Mr. Danbury and I are taking down the screens. Finally. Can't you make yourself useful, Ben? Just a little. But the next day when Anna came home from work, the leaves still lay upon the front lawn, a quiltwork of golden red. Oh, Ben. Ben. And so... Straining her eyes in the frigid darkness, Anna gathered them. Not one thing. Not one. He isn't good for anything. Ben Storch's gold teeth flashed in the warm light of the living room as he grinned out at his exhausted wife, scratching the freezing ground. And that night, the snow fell. The white feather-like flakes fluttered down out of the blackness into the light rays cast through the Storch's living room window. But it's snowing, Anna. You just got those leaves up in time. 
Yes, Ben. I, I hope it ain't heavy snow, Anna, for your sake. My sake? Why? Ben turned away from the window and his face was sad. Shoveling snow's hard work, Anna. Shoveling? Oh, no. Ben lay down on the couch and stared up at the ceiling. I wish I could help you, Anna, but my heart. I know, Ben. I know. It was still dark the next morning when Anna came out of the house. Ben, tangled in his warm bed, slept soundly upstairs. It had stopped snowing, and a blanket of white shrouded everything. Anna started shoveling. The scraping of the metal shovel on the cement sidewalk awakened Ben, and he climbed from his roost. He slid to the window and smiled down at the neat path his wife had cut through the white. When Anna had cleared the snow from the sidewalk in front of her house, she put the shovel on the porch and trudged off down the street to work. For two long blocks, she plodded through the deep white snow. Suddenly, Oh! My chest! I... It hurts! Dr. Brewster opened the door in answer to the frantic ringing of the bell. Well, Mrs. Storch! I... I got a sudden pain, doctor. Here, I... It was an hour later. After conducting a thorough examination, Dr. Brewster shook his finger at Anna. You've got to start taking it easy, Mrs. Storch. You're not getting any younger, you know. It's your heart. So now it's the two of us with bad hearts, eh? First Ben, now me. Ben? Bad heart? Well, I examined Ben last summer, didn't I? He came to me because of a pain in his chest. That's right. <laughs> Overeating. I told him. Simple indigestion. Ben's heart? Why, his heart's as strong as a man's half of his age. Anna looks mortified. It had started to hail when Anna came down the street. Her neatly cleaned sidewalk was covered with a layer of slick ice. She almost slipped going up the walk. She slammed into the house. Ben, sprawled on the couch, opened his eyes. Uh -huh. Who's that? Oh, it's you, Anna. Say, what time is it? Anna hurried past the living room and down into the cellar. Ben sat up, scratching his head. Uh, hey, certainly, I don't know how come you're home so early. Will you come down here for a minute, Ben? Ben went down, complaining. Anna stood there, her hair mussed, her eyes wild. She held that hatchet tightly. Ben backed away, horrified. And we see her lunging at him with an axe. Good for nothing, useless, lazy, good for nothing liar. Bad heart, is it? Can't do anything. Not good for anything. Oh, Anna, no! When Mr. Danbury came home from work later, he found Anna Storch lightly skipping along the sidewalk in front of her house, a bucket swinging in her hand. Scattering ashes, Miss Storch. Can I help you? Oh, no, Mr. St now, I think there's an error here, actually, because uh, she, she says, Oh, no, Mr. Storch. That's all right. Ben's being useful this time. But um, she's actually talking to Mr. Danbury, so it's a little bit of a typo there. Nothing uncommon. And she went on, gaily tossing the black ashes to the icy sidewalk. Mr. Danbury watched Anna for a while, then stooped and picked something up. Now Anna is singing as she's scattering the ashes. Ben's being useful. Ben's being useful. Mr. Danbury. Uh, uh, a gold tooth. Good Lord. <laughs> yep, kitties, that's my story. 
Ben made himself useful all right, the silly Ash. Only trouble was his talents were spread a little thin, but at least there weren't any slip-ups that night. As far as Anna is concerned, she copped an insanity plea and is now shoveling imaginary bodies into an imaginary furnace in a very real padded sail. Well, I'll see you again in the next issue of Crime Suspense Stories. Until then, bye. EC, that is. The End All right, so there you have it. Uh, the story of Mr. and Mrs. Storch and uh, the price of being a lazy piece of shit. Kind of would have liked to see him get hacked, but um, I did like the uh, I did like him finding the gold tooth at the end. That was pretty fun. Um, and her, her just going crazy and singing. Anyway, I loved it. I love the art. I meant to say that about about the last issue, the last story too. Sorry, the bone man art there is fantastic. I absolutely love it. Uh, but coming back here. Um, I really do adore that story. That's one that I read a, a while back, actually. And I actually could not remember where I read it. And so I pulled out a bunch of magazines and I was just kind of figuring out which ones I wanted to do for this episode. And I saw that one. I was like, yes, got to mark that one. That one has to be in this episode. So um, there's a lot of good ones in here. So I'll be coming back to these different collections and um, pulling different ones. But that's a, a classic EC style story that we all know and love. And I love it so much. Can't wait to dig into more just exclusively EC, but I want to get the some of the other uh, lesser-known titles as well. And that's actually what I'm going to be doing here with a story called Ghost Town, which was featured in Mysterious Adventures number 18, published by Story Comics in February of 1954. Story Comics was a publication that existed between 1951 and 1955. Overall, you know, they didn't really have a whole lot of output, but they started to take on sort of the EC method, which was not uncommon to do because they were successful, but uh, they had dark mysteries, fight against crime, uh, fight against the guilty, fighting war stories, mysterious adventures, Pawnee Bill, uh, romantic hearts, secret mysteries, and I'm sure there was probably some more unheard of things. Now, this the issue of Mysterious Adventures comes, it's credited as Pencils by High Fleischman. And unfortunately, that's the only credits as far as artistic or story. That's the only credits I can find for it. So uh, there might be more out there. If you know something I don't, please, uh, you know, please let me know. But that's all I can find for right now. What I like about this one is this is back in black and white. Um, some of the other stuff had been recolored. I don't mind it sometimes if it was recolored a long time ago. If it's been recently recently recovered or recolored, sorry, with like, I don't know, Photoshop or computer and it's more obvious. I don't really like that as much. It depends on the story. It, it doesn't necessarily kill it for me. It just takes me out of the sort of, I don't know, nostalgic feeling. I don't know. It's just, it's not the same. I don't want to dig into that anymore because I've done it before. I know and I go off on tangents, but I love it when it's just black and white as well. Now, this I'm reading this from a collection called Tales Too Terrible to Tell, and it is from New England Comics Press, and it even looks like Tales from the Crypt on the front. I know that's intentional uh, from them, but a little bit about New England Comics Press. They were publishing, well, it's more so about terrible uh, Tales Too Terrible to Tell. Uh, there were 76 um, 
more, I guess maybe silver age sized. They're, they're not quite magazine, but they're not your current size. It's 76 big pages. And they have a nice little star on there, a little uh, label that says conforms to no comics code. And I like that. So, um, they had this series through from uh, 1989 to 1990, um, and then they had winter 1989 to 1990, then July and August 1993, and they actually it's a little confusing. They it's they published nine, I think they published eleven actual books, and their collections of all these different public domain horror comics, old pre code, and. I think the reason that they said there's nine is because number 10 and 11 are actually Tales uh, Too Terrible presents Terrorology. So they were kind of rebranding the book, but they only had those two issues. But the numbering stayed the same. Um, But they did only put 44 pages in possibly the last two, for sure on the last one. So they had kind of scaled it down, I guess, because they were coming to an end. Actually, I take that back. They did 76 pages all the way up until number nine. They dropped it to 44 so I'm assuming the same thing happened with Tim. Regardless, they lowered the price, too, which is nice of them. Um, so it's a, I have a few of these, actually, these collections, and I actually really, really like this a lot. Much like the Haunted Horror, I would recommend going and find, finding these. Our host is a skeleton wearing what appears to be a robe. Ready for more fearful fairy tales, kitty? Okay, read on. This is a juicy little morsel, designed especially to delight lovers of blood and guts. We call it simply Ghost Town. We see a man who seems to be under some kind of attack by some translucent skulls floating around him with some kind of fog and melting background, maybe blood? No, please, you can't! For God's sake, please, stay away from me! No! No! I've just passed a sign that says Buffalo City, 12 miles. That's where I'm headed. I've never been there before, but what's the difference? Buffalo City sounds as good as any place else. We see a man smoking a cigarette, driving a vehicle. Buffalo City, eh? Okay, that'll make a safe hideout, I guess. All I need is some two-bit bird to hole up in until the heat dies down. Three days ago, I pulled a bank job in Kansas. Everything went off without a hitch, and now all I need is some place to lie low for a couple of weeks. We see him pulling money out of a bag next to him, inside of his car. $50,000, and all mine. Oh, brother, what a time I'll have once I can shake the Wild West out of my hair. It'll be back to New York for me. But for the time being, my plans for enjoying the loot will have to wait. Safety is more important than pleasure, and now I'm in Buffalo City. We see him stepping out of his car. For Pete's sake, this dump looks deserted. Where is everybody? All the stores are locked, the restaurants are closed, and the bar's empty. I finally end my tour of inspection at the town's only hotel. We see him inside the hotel. An empty hotel. Hey, anybody home? Anybody here? Well, I'll be darned. Looks like I picked a real ghost town. But that's fine with me. Why not? What better place to hole up than in a ghost town? I pick the best room in the hotel and get ready for some sleep. Hope I can... (sighs) 
find some uh, food around here when after I wake up. I fall into a deep sleep, but when I awaken, I'm not alone. We see three men standing behind him in the doorway, and one man's arm seems to be on his shoulder. Come on, mister, wake up. Yeah, you're a stranger. What are you doing here? What? Who? They start firing questions at me, and I begin getting worried. I wish my gun weren't in my jacket hanging across the room. Who sent you here, mister? Where do you come from? What are you, what are you here for? Wait a second. Take it easy. I can't answer everything at once. The sign over the hotel read Horace Bell, proprietor. It was a wild chance, but I took it. Horace Bell's my uncle, my last living relative. I came all the way from New York to find him. Are one of you men Horace? I've never seen him. Horace Bell is dead. He died a week ago. I hold my breath while they stand looking down at me. Will they believe me? Will they fall for it? Too bad you got here too late, son. But if you're Horace's nephew, you're one of us. Welcome. Now, wait a minute, Sam. You can't be sure. Stop worrying. Look at him. He looks just like Horace. And so they believe me. The idiots. They even hold a special dinner in my honor. Drink up, Kurt. It's the real thing. But as I eat, I notice Sam Curtis watching me like a hawk. He thinks to himself as he's taking a drink. I don't like the way he's looking at me. Wonder if he suspects anything. Ugh, what lousy tomato juice. During dinner, I finally ask a question that's been bothering me all night. Say, where was everybody this morning? You boys out prospecting or something? They all laugh. You're a real card, Kurt. Just like old Horace was. Sure, boy, we was prospecting. (laughs) His laughter puzzles me, but I quickly forget it. When after dinner, I hear an argument between Sam Curtis and another man. I'm warning you, Lewis. We've made a mistake. I watched him all during dinner, and I know. Sam, you're a fool. I don't believe it. That boy's one of our kind. He's Horace Bell's nephew. The more I listen, the more nervous I get. I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. Well, it's easy enough to find out the truth. We'll give him a test, and if he passes, I'll shut up. All right, all right, let's get to it. I'm sick of hearing this nonsense. I don't know what kind of test they mean, but whatever it is, I can't pass. I run up to my room and grab a little black bag. He thinks to himself as he's getting his money, I'm getting out of here. If they've heard about the Kansas bank job and find out I'm not Bell's nephew, they may put two and two together. But when I open the door to leave, Going somewhere, Kurt? Or, no, er, I just wanted to pack some clothes. That's all right, boy. Hate to bother you, but Sam here has got a crazy notion, and we want to show him he's wrong. And so I'm trapped. Mentally, I start kissing the 50 G's goodbye and preparing for a 20-year stretch in the pen. What lousy luck. Okay, what is it? What do you want to know? It ain't nothing you can't tell us, Kurt. It's something you can show us. Bring it in, boys. A mirror? What the heck is this all about? What am I supposed to show you? Stop talking so much, boy, and get up. Walk in front of that mirror. I'm beginning to think they're all wacky, but I do what he tells me. Okay. You satisfied? I'm in front of the mirror. Now what's all the... Hey, what's going on here? Why Why don't... See? See, you fools? He was right. He's not Horace's nephew. He's not one of us. We see his reflection in the mirror. My voice catches in my throat. Something is wrong, horribly wrong. I'm the only one in the room who is reflecting in the mirror. 
Who are you people? What are you? I knew I was right. I watched him eat, and he didn't like his blood cocktail. Hardly tasted fried brains. He didn't even like the blood clot ice cream. And now everything makes sense. Horrible, terrifying sense. Now, I know why only my reflection showed in the mirror. Why the town was deserted during the day. You're vampires! Vampires! Yes, young man, you're right. And you'll die for your knowledge. They move slowly toward me, and I back away. But there's no place to run. Nowhere to hide. Here, take this. $50,000. You can have it. All of it. Just leave me alone. Idiot. What do we want with money? No, boy. We'd rather have you. The three men are approaching. Now they all have, have very long fangs. They're crawling all over me now. It's too late for help. Too late for anything but death. I can feel the blood being drained from my body. He's nice and fresh, boys. Yeah, much better than that frozen stuff. Now as it ends, we do see one of the men sinking his teeth pretty deep down in his throat. So there's kind of like your gruesome little uh, panel there. Although it's not it's not bloody or anything like that. So, uh, But the description of what the dinner was I thought was really gross. But I actually just really liked that story. They had me at Ghost Town. And you, you obviously see pretty quickly what it's going to be. But I don't know. I still liked it. I, I like those kinds of stories like that. Like... Um, when Vincent Price was the, uh, not I Am Legend, but Last Man on Earth or whatever. Um, I, can't, I can't remember the actual real title right now for some reason. Maybe that was it. But anyway, uh, those kinds of things where they're just kind of walking around this town by themselves. There's a, there's a great, I want to say it's the very first episode of The Twilight Zone where it's uh, Burgess Meredith. And I think he's just like, he's walking around this town and no one's anywhere to be found. And then um, I want to say there was like the nuclear some, I can't remember exactly how that story unfolds, but it, at, by the end, spoiler alert, he's in a simulation. And uh, I don't know. I, I always like those kinds of stories, but I really like this one because I wasn't sure. You know, when you see Ghost Town, you don't necessarily think immediately vampires, but I had a really good time with it. Uh, it's nice and uh, creepy and the way he's kind of trying to blend in. And he's got there's two, two kind of things he's worried about. Well, now he's like, wait, do they know I'm the robber or B, are they going to find out that I'm lying about who I am? And I like just kind of like that logic of like, are they going to put two and two together? So I thought it was a really good time. Uh, nice and uh, nice and creepy little ending there. Um, but I like that he's narrating it after the fact. So obviously I guess he's going to be a vampire now. And uh, that's that. So hey, maybe he got off uh, for the better with this unless they actually just ate him. But um, who knows? But anyway, uh, we're going to move on to our next story, which is actually also a story from an earlier issue of Tales Too Terrible to Tell. And the story is The Door from Weird Mysteries number 11, which is actually the final issue of Weird Mysteries published by uh, Stanley Morris or Key. Now, the credits go to Art, and it's Eugene E. Hughes. There seems to be a little bit of question in that, but I'm just going to go with that. Now, Stanley Morris uh, or Key Magazine, as the brand goes, they had books like Action Adventure Comics, Algae, which was a humor in children's or teenagers magazine. They had Animal Adventures. They had Battle Attack, Battle Cry, Battle Fire, Battle Heroes, Battle Squadron. Jeez, 
that uh, Blazing Western climax, that seems like it's, that's actually a horror comic. And I actually haven't, in, at least yet, stumbled across any of that unless it's in one of these uh, collected deals that I just haven't gotten to yet. They had Crime Detector, Diary Confessions, Flying Aces, Hector Comics, Ideal Romance, Mr. Mystery, I do know that one, Mr. Universe, Mutiny, Navy Patrol, Navy Task Force. So their main focus, their main output was uh, war comics. Key Magazines was uh, active from 1951 to 1972. And this story, uh, actually, it was uh, published in that final Weird Mysteries uh, in July of 1954. Have you ever been lost? Have you ever known the panic and unutterable terror of being totally and completely lost? You haven't. Then come with Jim and Betsy Keegan. Come with them through and beyond the door. Betsy and Jim Keegan were a happy, carefree couple, and they liked to spend their time doing happy, carefree things. And we see Betsy and Jim at a carnival, standing in front of... Oh, the funhouse! Let's go in, Jim. Okay, look at that devil! That seems almost real! Now this funhouse has... I mean, it's got a devil with a pitchfork standing on top of it, and there's smoke billowing out. I, I would love to say I would never go in a building like this, but I would definitely go in a building like this. The fun house was all that was claimed for it. Crazy looking, cockeyed rooms, hilarious curved mirrors, floors that collapsed under you. We see them reach a dead end of doors. Now what? Doors. Dozens of doors. I guess we're supposed to find the right one. Yes, they tried several doors until they found it. The right one. Here it is, honey. Oh, come on. Gee, it, it's awful dark in there. But that must be it. It's the only one that opens. The door shut behind them, leaving them in almost total darkness. The only light in the curious cavern emanated from the walls. Yeah, hey, did you notice? Uh, these walls are luminous. Yes, it's positively eerie. Well, we might as well see what this tunnel leads to. They wound their way along the winding passages, coming to many forks in the path, choosing their way at random. Suddenly, Betsy let out a blood-curdling scream. I'm sorry, shriek. And I'm not going to do that, because I, at this point, I can't. What is it, Betsy? A snake! I, I stepped on it! Holy smokes! It's a real one! Hey, I don't like this. Let's get out of here. We do see a snake coiled up, staring at them. They turned and began to make their way back the way they had come. Well, this way, Betsy. Are you sure? It seems to me we turned here, left. Now, I, if I'm making this, this man, uh, Jim, sound old, I really don't know what's going on. In the very first panel you see him, he kind of almost looks like an Archie character. And as the book goes on, I mean, within the first few panels... He, he kind of starts looking more like a James Bond type. So, um, it just kind of changes here and there. 
but uh, they're not old. They look like they're probably supposed to be, you know, mid to late 20s. Hard to tell with comics back then, sometimes at least. It was at that moment that Jim Keegan knew a moment of panic, for he realized suddenly that he had, hadn't the vaguest notion as to how to get back. Well, there's only one thing to do. We'll have to keep going and trust to luck. This tunnel has to end somewhere. I am making him sound older. I wasn't really trying to sound that. I'm trying to do more of a poindextery kind of thing, but now it doesn't really fit because he just, like I said, he kind of looks like Roger Moore. And he didn't in the beginning. <clears throat> so maybe I'll evolve with him. But I'm not going to try to sound like Roger Moore. But the tunnel did not end. It went on and on, turning, twisting, branching into countless tributaries, leading them deeper and deeper into the endless maze. Jim, I'm scared. What does it mean? Why can't we find our way out? I don't know, baby, but we've got to keep going. They did keep going. For hours and hours, they searched terror-gripping them. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> I don't know, baby, but we've got to keep going. They did keep going. For hours and hours, they searched, terror gripping them tighter and tighter in its suffocating grasp. Hungry, frightened, and exhausted, they realized that they were completely and irretrievably lost. Jim, what's going to happen to us? We'll starve to death. No one will ever know. Oh, Jim, it's horrible. Easy, honey, easy. We'll find a way. Suddenly, from out of the darkness, a figure appeared. Jim, look! A, a man! But look at him! The creature staggered forward. Now this man looks like a zombie at this point. The creature staggered forward, laughed once in a strange, cackled, high-pitched voice, and then fell at their feet, his whole body racked with sobs and hysterical weeping. Paralyzed into speechlessness, they waited until the stranger had regained his composure. Then they listened silently as he told them a strange tale. My name is Conrad Steiner. I... I was a civil engineer. Five years ago, I was sent to this location to survey the area for a possible amusement park. I was looking over the site when I ran across a strange door carved in the side of a cliff. I entered it and, well, I got lost somehow. And I haven't been able to find my way out since. You're the first human beings I've seen in all that time. Five years? Good heavens. How have you managed to stay alive without food or water? Steiner explained that water was plentiful as the walls were constantly covered with moisture. As for food, this green mold or whatever it is has kept me alive somehow. But the door, do you think you'll ever find it again? Is there a possibility of our finding our way back to the door? We will continue to search for it. You see, here in the labyrinth, there's not much else to do but search for the door. So they searched, living solely on the peculiar, tasteless green mold that clung to the stone walls. Days turned into weeks, and weeks into months. Gradually, Betsy and Jim felt their hopes ebbing, and as hope left them, so little by little did their sanity. They became mere shadows of their former selves, and they still walked and walked, searching incessantly, endlessly for the door. The door to civilization, to sunlight. To life. It burned in their minds, consumed them, drove them. 
at this point, Jim and Betsy have both seemingly aged. I mean, Betsy looks pretty rough, and, and so does Jim, but Jim's kind of got a beard. I say kind of. He's got a beard now, but the other fella, oddly enough, hasn't changed a bit since they found him. And then one day, a man, a man, at the end of a very dark tunnel, they see the silhouette of a man. He sees us. Hurry. He'll know where the door is. He must know. They stumbled over each other in their eagerness to greet the new stranger. Hysterically, they laughed and cried and kissed his hands and his feet. And then they asked him, The door. Where is the door that will lead us from this infernal hole? He gazed at them curiously at first. Then he smiled, a sad, slow smile. At last, he spoke. Strange that you should ask me that question. You see, I've been searching for the door for 30 years. Time became meaningless now, and the door became an obsession, always eluding them, always beyond their grasp. I can't go on. Leave me. Let me die. No, no. We can't stop now. You can't give up. They had just about given up. Hope had drained from their souls when... Look, a door. But is it the right one? They stood before the portal, afraid to open it. Afraid that this was not the answer to their search. Afraid that they would be doomed for the rest of their days. Go ahead. Open it. Open it. Now this door is very strange looking. It's very like, I don't know, bumpy? It's got a door frame, but it's just kind of strange looking. It's got like squiggles all over it or something. Slowly, Jim opened the door. And they looked through to freedom. To where freedom should be. Then the scene before them revealed itself, and they recoiled in horror, in terror. Yes, they had finally found the door, the right door, the door to Hades. We see your typical devil-type creature from the waist up and from the waist down with a tail and hairy kind of goat legs with hooves. Welcome, welcome. I see you found the way. Good, good. Always room for a few more. (laughs) And that's it. They found the door to hell. Uh, That was a fun one. I liked that. I loved the idea of being, I I don't know, that was kind of like the same as the last one. It's like the idea of searching this ghost town all by your lonesome. This horror tale of getting lost in a maze is very, um, I don't know, that's really scary to me. And especially like when it turns into you're no longer even in any kind of part of the funhouse maze or the carnival. You're just in like a, a, a stone tunnel. I loved that story. I thought it was so fun and the art was great and I was not expecting them to go to hell. So that was, uh, you know, you get tipped off with the guy not aging and the guy looking for 30 years. Um, I mean, obviously they're aging, but the one that was with them, uh, Steiner, I think they said, he 
didn't age in their whole process. So I, I don't know if that was a intentional thing or whatever. But at some point, he kind of just disappears. Like after they find that other guy, you don't see Steiner again. So that was interesting, but I liked it a lot. I like these old stories, and I'm excited to actually kind of, I hope you don't mind me not sticking to one particular magazine. It's just, in these, like these tales too terrible to tell, it's like there are, there's like eight stories, and there's a bunch of in-between kind of like uh, history kind of things, which are interesting, and I wouldn't mind reading someday, but that's just, that's a long, that's a long episode, which I'm not opposed to. I just, I kind of don't want to pick and choose from here, but we'll see what happens. And moving forward, um, hopefully we can do that greening of Gotham story where Swamp Thing takes Gotham City. To say hostage is a little light, um, I love that story and I'm excited to get into it. And hopefully you guys enjoy it. And again, we'll see if it's actually going to be the next episode. I I live in Louisiana, uh, North Louisiana, but still Louisiana. And Uh, Mardi Gras stuff is this weekend. Now, I don't really care for it that much. My wife loves it. And, um, you know, sometimes we get roped into it. I think I got the out to not have to participate in at least the Saturday goings-ons. There is actually a function that I actually do like on Sunday that's more of like our specific neighborhood, like community um, has their own little deal. And it's more like supports our local businesses in the area and whatnot. So that's more fun. But all that to say, um, we're hoping to get to record Greening of Gotham on Saturday. And then after that, I'm going to dig through and see what other horror stories I can find to put together for an episode. And I do love doing this. So thank you all for listening. It really means a lot. Uh, If you want to get on the show with show mail or anything like that, you can always uh, send me an email at horrorcomicspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Horror Comics Pod on Twitter and feel free to, you know, contact and say hello or suggest books or whatever. I love hearing from all of you and um, I, I love suggestions on new things to read, uh, anything like that. So please get in touch. And um, that wraps up this episode. And it, I feel like it was a really fun one, at least for me, to read through the stories. I'm not feeling as uh, goofy. <laughs> not I say goofy, hate that word. Not feeling as loose as uh, normally, but um, you know, I still had fun with it, and um, I hope you all had fun listening. And uh, I'll, until next time, everybody stay spooky and keep on reading those horror comics. <laughs> <laughs>